Hello, evolutionaries, and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Kit Miller. Kit has served as the director of the MK Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence in Rochester, New York, since 2009. Prior to that, she worked as director and celebrator of Bay Area Nonviolent Communication in Oakland, California. Kit has been learning about nonviolence and organizing on its behalf for the past 26 years. She draws on Gandhian and Kingian nonviolence, as well as nonviolent communication and permaculture, for direction and daily practice. Kit sees herself as an educator-practitioner hybrid. In addition to using the Institute itself as a learning laboratory for principled nonviolence, she teaches and works on community projects related to restorative justice, sustainability, and anti-racism in Rochester and elsewhere. Kit has taught hundreds of groups worldwide and has spoken at the United Nations several times in recent years about nonviolence with youth in the 21st century. Kit has an MA in Social Innovation and Sustainability from Goddard College and a BS from Cornell University. Go Big Red. Welcome, Kit. Thank you, Andrew. It's so good to see you and hear your voice. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to, to this conversation. I've, I've learned so much from you in the past and always have a, have a special uh, feeling during, during conversations with you. And, and I think it, that just this presence that you have, and, and I think that's related to, to this lifelong study of nonviolent communication. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what that is for, for those that, that may not know. I'm sure you could write a dissertation on it, but, but how do you describe nonviolent communication? Um, honestly, I think of it as a communication. It's, I think of it actually as a spiritual discipline, spiritual awareness process, masquerading as a communication process. Um, because Marshall Rosenberg, who is the founder of that body of work, who I um, spent quite a bit of time with over the years, um, first as a board member for the International Center for Nonviolent Communication, and then when I assumed the the rollout in Oakland, California that you mentioned. Um, I organized for him and did, did a lot for him. And, you know, really, as a friend, stayed at his home and stuff. So um, the underlying idea behind nonviolent communication is very connected to Carl Rogers' work and, you know, a, a pretty prominent American psychologist in the 20th century who uh, called out the idea that all human behavior everything we say and do is an attempt to get some set of needs met. And when we understand that um, we can become less mysterious and more clear in our intentions and our values. And also that we don't get in conflict with one another at the level of our needs. We generally get in conflict with the level of the strategies that we use to meet our needs. So when we um, have an argument or a fight, it's usually around those strategies um, but if we reel back and say, well, what are the needs between, behind what I'm looking for, what you're looking for, uh, far likelier uh, that we can create a strategy that works better for everybody, which means it also has, um, the agreement has a much further out expiration date. If we make agreements with people where they're not really checking in with what they needing or wanting, generally, the, you know, sometimes the ink isn't even wet on the, on the document before like actually the, the agreement's never kept or um, or it's kept wholeheartedly or it's kept only using power over with people, which is a very expensive way to do anything. Mm. Yeah, the, the one thing that I, that's coming to me as you're, as you're talking about that, you know, going deeper beyond this, this surface level agreement and this more kind of transactional relationship, uh, it, it occurs to me that there has to be, to, to be willing to go to that place, uh, I'm sure a lot of trust involved. Is, is there is there 
certain things that, that you do before you get to that nonviolent communication to, to let people open up um, to be vulnerable? Or is it part of that nonviolent communication process to, to get people to build that trust? Trust is de definitely for me, like the gold standard asset in any group. Uh, when, when a group has high trust, um, pe people can disagree with one another all the time and not notice, you know, like if I think if you and I were to work on a, a project and we have pretty decent trust between us, you know, you could say, you know, I want to launch this thing in September and, and I'd say, you know, I just can't even begin to see that happening because of this or that. And then we would go back and forth and we would figure it out, right? That in some spaces would be considered a terrible argument if there was no trust. Because for me, even to open my mouth to disagree with you would be, as, you know, I'd see it as you'd, I'd be punished for it. Right. Or I would, you know, or you get pissed at me and like not want to play anymore. So when there's high trust, you could, we have good fights all the time and we don't even notice it. Um, and, and all of us have experienced spaces where we've enjoyed the benefits of high trust. And we've also, all of us have experienced what happens when trust goes away in a group. Like the work of minutes I've written about this in the past literally can become hours. And, and, you know, this is what keeps courts, a lot of the courts, both civil and sometimes criminal in business is that we don't know how to, we don't know what to do when that happens. Um, for me, I actually, I use uh, principles of nonviolent communication in every space I work, and it's not necessarily something that's overt. So I, when all the time I'm listening for the underlying needs that people are speaking to. And um, so even if I'm in a community meeting and I'm, you know, someone's really passionate about something, I said it, Sounds like you're needing more transparency in this process. Sounds like you're wanting to have more trust that there will be equity in what we're trying to do here. And people say, yeah, you know, that's or no, you know, so it's always, so I, I feel like I use the, the, this framework all the time and, um, you know, either implicit or explicit ways. And it really helps. It really enables my, my efficiency and my effectiveness. I, and also my, my care and my mercy. Because um, mm -hmm. one of the people I also most use it on is myself. Um, I was raised Catholic, and somehow, some way, um, in that journey, I took on the idea that I'm afraid too many other people who are also raised in different religious traditions took on that you're supposed to care for creation, but the part of creation that really doesn't matter is your you. And so, I think one of the ways in which I've worked really hard. To bring nonviolent communication into my life is to really work on having mercy and compassion for myself. And I think as a leader, I think as a leader, we really have to do that. Like when we, all the self-hate that we have in ourselves as leaders that we were given by the culture, we didn't ask for it. Um, it always goes tumbling out on the people around us with less rank and privilege. And that's, that's true as a parent, it's true as a, as a leader, even as a facilitator in a group. So. Mm, that's beautiful. Wow. So I, I know that you teach workshops on this. We might, we might have a chance later to, to talk a little bit about some of the specific themes of the workshops, but are there any uh, tips of, of things either that, that you're thinking about to disrupt maybe some of those patterns or uh, is it about just active listening? Are there, are there any techniques or, or questions that you ask either of yourself or others when you're when you're trying to practice this or get into that mindset? Yeah, I mean, one thing for me was that I, um, 
know, I, I, while I was trying to acquaint myself with the idea that, it, that, that I had needs underlying everything I was doing, that it was a, a really major practice for a while. You know, I'd have lists around the house. I was a stay-at-home mom when I first started trying to learn this, and I was also a stepmom, which for a while in my life was hands down the most grueling role I had taken on. I often like just try to when I'm if I'm with a group I'll ask who here are step parents and what what is that like? It's hard. It's hard to have another uh, someone else's child in your house, especially because there's often these really painful dynamics in play. So I was really learning nonviolent communication at a time that I where I had this um, son who was not mine uh, with me, and he was heading into his teenage years, and it was tough. So um, you know he would come in the kitchen and say something often and. I would literally just walk over to my needs list and say, okay, this is, whoa, I'm not meeting my need for choice right now, not meeting my need for consideration right now. The way that he spoke didn't mean my need for respect right now. Okay, you know, just really using the, you know, life as a, as a coach. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I just did a lot of work like that. I did a lot of work with, uh, you know, like, in practice groups, I did a lot of work with journaling, and basically, you know, to get to the time where, when I would, I was trying to shrink the time between when something would happen and when I thought, I wonder if I could apply a nonviolent communication framework to this moment, and, um, and that was a hard journey for me because my mouth has historically been, you know, sometimes, you know, a minute ahead of my. <laughs> my thinking and sometimes five to ten to one hour ahead of my values and so and, you know I, I, I felt like I had a lot of work to do because I've been always someone who's quick to speak and when you're someone who's quick to speak um, you can you can really get yourself in trouble so um, but it was it was it's definitely been uh, well worth uh, the effort and I'm happy to say that I, I don't often anymore say things that I regret um, I often say things I could have like, oh, I could have said this in a way that it could have been clearer or more supportive, but I don't say things I regret very often anymore. And I'm glad about that. Mm. Well, that's one of the things I, I really admire about you is just how much you, you really live and breathe these principles that you're trying to teach others. I love that uh, life as a coach. I, I, I really like that the way that you're always really trying to keep this top of mind, but is there, is there a point that you can go back to where you started getting interested in this nonviolent communication or where did this, where did this passion bubble up from? Well, honestly, um, it bubbled up from, um, a couple things. Like I was raised in a house with some verbal and physical violence. And so, um, I had my youngest daughter by myself as a 27 year old. Um, and um, and I, all this all this conditioning was just waiting for me, and I, it just broke my heart to see. And I had such a lack of self acceptance. You know, I had these like thoughts that would fly into my head, um, uh, and I it, I just scared the crap out of me. So I just thought I've got to I've got to do some work on myself. And then, um, and then I also 
and I've always loved to, to do volunteer work that really puts me on my learning edge. So I, you know, done work in homeless shelters, and I used to do work with women and children when the AIDS epidemic was really bad here back in the 90s. And um, it's one of the things I love about your dad, where our, our, our volunteer social justice paths have crossed paths for, in Rochester for decades. And I worked in a hospice, and so it was a great gift to be a hospice worker. And one of the things I really learned from hospice work was that regardless of whether I, I had the privilege of serving as, uh, at Dimitri, excuse me, Isaiah House, which was on Prince Street and one of the ministries of Corpus Christi Church at that time, which has since been disbanded, but um, not, not Isaiah House, the church. But um, what I found was that no matter what, where people came from, whether they, you know, were, had a sort of comfortable middle-class Rochester lives, or whether they were people who had been kind of harmed from the jump by their identity and by their social status, such that they'd sometimes spent too much of their lives institutionalized one way or the other. So regardless of when, when I, who I was with, we had a, a wide range of people that we cared for. It wasn't just middle-class people, it wasn't just poor people, it was a really great range. And what I was able to pull out was a common denominator was that people seem to, in my experience, die sometimes really struggling about how they had or had not taken good care of their relationships. And that for me just was like paramount. And at the time I was working and making a lot of money um, in sales and marketing. Um, and I got married and my husband literally, I was, the, I was making about twice what he was. And when we got pregnant with my, our youngest, um, I decided that I wanted to stay home. And because I, re I realized that if I, if I just stayed at work and just kept making money, um, that I, I felt like I was, that was gonna be one of those relational regrets. Um, so I did. And staying home, I was terrible at it. Um, for the same reason I was a good student, and uh, a really good salesperson back in the days because I, you know, I was all focused by, you know, I was a good student of our culture, which focuses on getting things done and being in the future. And, um, but, but as, you know, all of us know is from being around children and because we were children, we're all former children, that um, children don't care about any of that stuff. So they're all about now and being utterly process oriented. And so I, my, all that conditioning, and I wasn't making any money. Now all of a sudden, all that came roaring in. It was really rough. And I, I really began to think that I needed to go back to work and let my children be raised by someone who was a lot kinder and gentler than I, than I was because I, I was just convinced that I was going to pass harm to them. And, uh, and be, but because of the hospice work, I thought, you know, I, I'll regret this. So you can't. So where's your door number three? And nonviolent communication and and this full field of nonviolence became door number three mm, wow thank you so much for sharing that yeah that's um because i you know I've, I've known you for for several years now but um certainly certainly not not that far back and there's there's not many people that i would say i i know that are kinder and gentler so uh you know i think that speaks to the the, the power of these principles, the, the power of your, of your practice uh, over time. And so I, I think that 
hopefully gives gives a lot of listeners some some hope, you know, that that they may uh, be able to follow a similar path if they commit to it and and really study these these principles. So absolutely, uh, a really powerful story. Thank you. Thanks. So how then along the way um, did you stumble on the, the Gandhi Institute? I, I forget how many greats it is, but I know that I know that it was founded by the, the great, great, great grandson of, of, of Mohandas Gandhi. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the founding of the center and then how your, your paths kind of merged? Sure. Yeah. Actually, the institute was founded by the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who spent time with his granddad as a child and as a 12 year old uh, it's a great interesting story you can look at it's a young adult book called legacy of love i highly recommend it um so he and uh arun and his wife sunanda founded gandhi institute when they first moved to the united states from mumbai india um, in 1991 they founded the institute down in memphis tennessee it was housed at christian brothers university but Arun grew up actually in South Africa. Um, so his father, you know, you know, Gandhi spent 21 years kind of becoming who we think of as Gandhi now. I mean, he, when he moved to South Africa, he was a very much like, you know, wannabe middle-class attorney you know, and, and quite, quite colonized in his thinking by in his British education. And because he was, he was brought up under, you know, colonial in India where, where white people were held up as you know the exemplar of all the all the best things, and so uh, he was he really swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. So when he moved to South Africa, he was very much part of that thinking, and and even in his early efforts to distinguish you know like Indian people from like black South African, you know, he used some of the, the derogatory language back then that that the British people did, which now you know he's been called out for in, in recent years. And he didn't stay in that place at all um, because he began, he began to see from his own experiences of suffering, uh, he had this amazing moral imagination to recognize that the prejudice that he was receiving in South Africa, which was an order of magnitude worse than what he had experienced in India or in England when he was doing his law degree, um, was really egregious. And so he began you know, his social activism work in South Africa, which is one of the reasons why Mandela, you know, credits Gandhi as being one of the people that kind of created contemporary South Africa. And, you know, even the roots of the African National Congress go back to early days that Gandhi had with uh, John Dubé. I can geek out on this. Okay, let me come back, Andrew. That wasn't your question. So anyway, Arun grew up in South Africa because his father grew up in South Africa. And Arun was kicked out of South Africa by the apartheid government in the 1950s when he got, when he married his wife and applied for a visa so they they founded the institute came came over in 1991 and particularly were called upon at that point to try to work on issues of racial injustice in the united states the institute moved up to rochester in about 2005 because sunanda had contracted cancer and the only uh close family that they had in the united states then actually was a woman who is their daughter who married a Xerox Webster dude. So, um, so that's how the, the Institute moved to Rochester. Um, I joined the Institute staff in 2009. And at that point, we were actually in the inter- at the bar in like kind of like a little room closet. 
And like I did that thing that leaders sometimes do. They, I went on kind of like a listening tour uh, for about six months and, and kind of came back from that tour and asked the board if we could consider moving off campus um, because it didn't feel like a fit for, you know, an organization whose namesake was famous for his simplicity and his austerity and his commitment to living like the very poorest people in a very poor country didn't feel like a fit to be on a kind of essentially what felt what an elite college campus. Um, I'd also my previous employer in Oakland, California was kind of more in a neighborhood like right across from a hotel that was constantly under surveillance by the Oakland Police Department. I just was more used to frankly like kind of a grittier environment and I kind of missed it. So we moved the institute at that point um, after about a year and a half uh, we we moved into a formerly abandoned house, 929 South Plymouth Avenue. You've been there before. And it's now a very beautiful place, but at the time it was a complete wreck. And so we moved in March of 2012, and uh, it was a great move. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is a it is a beautiful place. And, and somewhere where you, I think, have been a part of, uh, you know, revitalizing that, that area and that neighborhood and the, and the gardens that you have. Uh, you know, really just taking this this holistic approach to um, to the transformation there, which, which I really appreciate. I want to say that, um, well, I thank you for that. And I want to say that I have actually felt a little torn about our presence there in some ways and actually acknowledge that to the head of the Plymouth Exchange Neighborhood Association, because I, I've actually seen that the, the danger of the Institute's presence at contributing to gentrification in the Plymouth Exchange neighborhood, which has been one of the historically, you know, black neighborhoods of Rochester. And um, I did not want us to inadvertently contribute to that. Um, so we've, you know, I've been in dialogue with uh, some of the neighborhood leaders for years, you know, who are all uh, mostly uh, senior citizens of African-American descent. And it's been, it's been a great relationship. I want to say that we, you know, went there really to be informed by the suffering of the people in the neighborhood. You know, the, it's a food desert neighborhood. Uh, it's a neighborhood where, you know, like people of African-American descent in, you know, cities like Rochester are essentially perennial like refugees in their own community. Um, and so unemployment, um, some interpersonal violence, that, that was that there used to be more shootings in the neighborhood than there have been, but um, I wouldn't want us to take credit for it. We have focused on our campus of creating a space with a lot of beauty, uh, a lot of people coming, um, and we do outreach through food to our neighbors, um, um, both through sharing food from our garden and through these free community dinners that we do. So we've tried to build connection through just that human act of you know eating good food with one another. But we were, I mean, I really wanted us to be like, have our, our practice informed by the space in which we were working. It was not a, as best we could, I never want to go in there with a kind of a savior attitude because nobody needs to be saved. We have to all be saved together. Mm. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about some of the different ways that you uh, are applying these principles across different organizations, across different groups and in different kind of paths there. But one of the things that you brought up that I didn't want to let go was was this this merging of the of the garden, 
uh, kind of the environmental sustainability with the social justice. Can you talk a little bit about how you see those things fitting together? Because I think uh, some people some people don't see the links, and and I do think it's it's so important. Yeah, I think to be any organization, I don't care what your mission is at this point in human history, um, there has to be an inclusion of sustainability in everything that we think and do, or else we won't be here. Um, there's twice as, more than twice as many people on the planet now as there were from the time I was born. The environmental degradation is, you know, is extreme. Um, you know, month after month, we have the hottest months on record. Um, so we have, as a, you know, as a species, we're in trouble. And so I think, I, I think every organization, regardless, and I'm not just talk, asking this of nonprofits, I'm asking every business, every organization of human beings to really consider, like, how can we be part of the solution instead of part of the problem? So we, that was very much part of the DNA of the Institute from the time that I started there. And, and that, that, that word permaculture in, um, in my bio is from, is actually this really cool study. I invite people who have not heard of that word to um, look, do some more looking, but it's basically a set of nonviolent, I think of it as a set of nonviolent design systems principles for being able to design in the way that nature designs. So I use those principles for a lot of uh, a lot of different kinds of decision making as a leader at the institute. Which it's it's we could talk about that for a whole hour another time. But I I think you know I I think that all organizations need to think about sustainability. I think all organizations need to think about social justice. All of them. Um, no, whether you're an accountant or an attorney or in manufacturing or working in government or the courts or the, anything, we all have. And the cool thing about that is that when we, when we bring that wholeness into our thinking, that it, it, it informs and lifts all of us. Um, I, have my, I am so privileged to have extraordinary colleagues who worked at the Institute over the years. Um, and frankly, we don't pay that well. We have a really good vacation policy. We follow the European Union vacation policy. We have we pay full medical on a not great plan, um, but we don't we don't we don't all any of us make a lot of money. Um, and I've had amazing people come and, and stay for years sometimes because the the sense of the mission has been so compelling that it's hard for people to want to leave. Uh, I like creating that problem for my staff. Mm. One of the words that you mentioned when you're talking there was wholeness. And, and I think that at a time like this, uh, many of us are, are feeling a, a lack of wholeness, um, a, a brokenness, a, a confusion, a disorientation. Um, and so I, I was, I, I mean, I can just think of, you've talked a little bit about kind of your personal practice uh, and some of the communication and some of the ways both with yourself and with others that, that you try to dig into these needs. But tell us a little bit, because I know that you apply these principles at the Gandhi Institute um, in, in many different ways. Actually, I saw on your website that you prioritize programming for people between 12 and 24. So sadly, I no longer qualify. Uh, but tell us a little bit about some of the ways that you're, that you're teaching this, because I know that you're in schools. I know that there's some, some different ways that you try to teach these practices. Mm -hmm. Well, we have, um, we do, we have been, in the years I've been at the, since 2009, we've been advocates 
for in area schools, especially in the Rochester City School District, for the use of restorative practices that are culturally informed as a way to, like a, a tremendous way to transform school climate, um, to be able to create spaces where people genuinely trust that they matter, where there's a genuine sense of safety. Because when that happens, then all sorts of amazing things happen in every organization, including schools. So all organizations need to have create spaces where people trust that they matter and where people feel safe, both physically and emotionally. And when that happens, then human beings are set up to succeed. And that's just as true in schools as it is in any organization. It's just as true in a school as it is in a chic advertising agency that prides itself on having an awesome office and lots of, you know, employee-centered HR practices. You know, like, you know, all human beings have the same sets of needs. So, so we've been we've been proponents of restorative practices, and I'll just say a quick definition of restorative practices are are a set of principles that center human beings in, um, so there's a lot of focus on relationship building, which um, is very culturally relevant, especially for um, all world cultures, but especially many of the cultures that are, that global cultures that are not, especially of Northern European descent, the sort of orientation towards communal principles and values or towards relationships as being the core and most important thing, more than productivity even, but relationships are really what center, um, especially a lot of um, cultures from you know, the global south. So especially in schools where many of the students are coming from families or even not historically. Um, this way of thinking is a much better fit. Um, I think it's a better fit for all human beings. So in restorative practices, the kind of general guideline from the International Institute of Restorative Practices, that means you put about 80% of your time on relationship building. So you don't just get into the classroom and start into math. You get into the classroom and you start out the day with a circle and you have a chance to speak about, um, you know, what was something that real that was really special that happened over the weekend? Or um, what's the most important thing that someone in your family has taught you? Or um, what's the uh, silliest song that makes you happy on a sad day? Like just relationship building. And these are the kinds of questions that I use on my team with our check-ins too. So these are, again, there's human, there's just human elements. So, um, so restorative practices centers that kind of relationship building with children before we go into other kinds of things. And there's all sorts of research on it. And then 20% of restorative practices relates to, so when, when we get in trouble with one another, when conflicts emerge, um, whether they are emerging just through words or through physical violence, um, then it's also a way to think about what to do when that happens. So. Um, Restorative practices are community-based response when harm and violence occurs. So instead of um, there being a sort of an abstract rule of law that that is that we turn to to decide when you do this, then this. Instead, the people that are involved in the situation are the ones themselves that come together and break down the situation through a series of questions and 
um, and then they derive the answer to what's needed. Um, again, tons of research on the effectiveness of this. Um, uh, I've been involved with trying to bring these ideas and principles to the University of Rochester and also as a way of even like into the EAP processes there. Um, just help to adjudicate like a, a case, a Title IX case using that there. And so um, I think these are, again, these are human ideas. So we've been pleased to bring these into the, the schools in the area, um, including, and was a great triumph that in 2016, you know, in 2010, literally people on RCSD school board weren't even familiar with the phrase by 2016, restorative practices had been, um, included into a rewritten, um, you know, policy or code of conduct. Um, our work is never done in this stuff because there's still a lot of things that pull people into wanting to do things behind closed doors, wanting to do things in this power over thing. It's hard for people to trust that if they're transparent and share power with people like school children or teachers or parents that they will actually be taken care of. So um, there's a lot of work that we will never get done doing. But our focus particularly is in two um, schools now that um, where students close to 100% poverty rate um, and the, so the, the students and the families are really up against it structurally, you know, um, through poverty, through racism, through health issues, uh, sometimes engagement with criminal justice. So we're, we're really working in those schools to try to like lovingly mindfully like hold everybody um and we do that in the school right behind us in gandhi institute at uh, charles lunsford academy which um, is also called school number 19 and also at the enrico Fermi school just off j street which people call school 17. i don't enjoy throwing the numbers around about the city schools um, that people often do because i think it's one of the ways in which we industrialize our thinking about the schools and we don't do that to children who go to schools in the suburbs um, and everybody all children um, actually actually really deserve the same education and they don't get it in this community incredibly disparate school systems so it's so I'll never stop working on that it doesn't matter until we get to that equity and we lose so much by not having that equity. Andrew, I get inspired in talking to you, and I don't think I stay on topic. No, that was perfect, because, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, I, I actually read a book recently called Upstream, and it was, uh, you know, just basically about how some of the, some of the preventative things that we can do, some of, the, some of the small tweaks that we can make if we go upstream can have downstream impacts that not only save money, you know, for society, but, but change lives. Right. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you talk uh, about, yes, let's, let's work with these young people. There's, there's hopefully then a lot less for them to unlearn uh, if, we, if we teach them some of these practices at a young age. But, but I know that you do work uh, with, with, you know, adults as well. I had the, the privilege, gosh, a year, year and a half ago to, to go to Groveland Prison as, as folks were soon to be uh, released just to talk about the, the, the fears that they had and, and wow was that a powerful day but can you tell us a little bit about because I'm thinking you know especially in the conversations going around in, in today's world uh, you know in in the criminal justice system uh, you know the different ways that maybe some of these principles could could be applied 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to say just on the adult ed stuff, since COVID started, we, we have um, repositioned the trainings and offerings that we do. And so public, we do a lot of public trainings right now, focusing on some of the harder issues of the day. Um, communication during tough times is one, or during hard times is one that we've been doing. Um, I do that with one of my colleagues, and so that's a nice uh, one for people to check out. Um, we've been doing workshops um, around ang harnessing anger as a force for change, recognizing how many people struggle with anger as a force in their lives, and you know we, we want to use everything in people's lives, including all the difficulty, the anger. We do. A, I've been doing a workshop for about five years called "Let's Talk About Hate," to really like let's let's name. You know, there's. There's a lot of fear and judgment about people on the other side, you know, of the political aisle right now. Um, for me, feelings like a bitterness and contempt, which are uh, part of the dip that we talked about earlier, um, and, and hate. That's a cluster, like a plant cluster, I think. And so we're, we're trying to help people deal with some of the difficult moments these days. We've also been doing grief and support circles. Um, and um, because I, if we're not um, making spaces to just um, process some of the grief of being alive right now, we're going to get numb. And there's no such thing as partially numb. You know, when we, when we have to numb out to the difficulties in our lives, then we numb out to the beauty. We numb out to the potential of being alive in this world. So we've been doing a lot of that and just people can look at our website and all of our, all these events, the sliding scale starts at zero. Um, we have people from all over the country checking our work out right now. Even some folks from outside the country um, popping in. Um, so we might actually put our, move our sliding scale from zero to five bucks or maybe starting at 10. We've been wanting to be super inclusive, but we are finding a lot of people registering aren't showing up, which is annoying because we have to turn other people away and then, Got empty empty seats on Zoom, um, and then we're I'm, we're engaging also with a lot of private work right now too because of what's happening with the anti-racism work. So lots of workshops um, coming up on um, issues like conflict without contempt. You know how do people really engage with one another? Um, uh, implicit bias, conversations on race. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of different work that we've been doing with organizations also. I serve on the faculty for the Racial Equity Justice Initiative too, and so very hands-on with that. I also co-chair the Community Justice Council with Adrian Hale from the Chamber of Commerce and some other community projects too, so it's pretty busy. But we, we, we've enjoyed supporting organizations, doing some organizational work, um, taking kind of our own you know, efforts in becoming an anti-racist organization and bringing that learning in. And what's great about it is that when people um, pay us to do that kind of work, um, you know, they're supporting the work of the nonprofit, which is great. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because we were, we were having a little bit of a discussion before we got started just around some of the ways that, that you all have been, been thinking about and, and really going on this journey uh, as an organization, I know that many folks in, in their own businesses, maybe they didn't talk about it or they shied away from it or it made them uncomfortable or for whatever reason, you know, not enough progress was made. And now that they're being, I think, uh, you know, awoken to all, all of these things that, 
that are that have been bubbling under the surface for so long, um, they feel ill-equipped to to get started on that journey. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about how you've really led by example at the Gandhi Institute, and and maybe uh, use that as as a way for, for people that are business leaders that are listening to, to really see a, a path forward and maybe be able to engage in, in how to join, join you on that journey? Sure, yeah. And the first thing I just wanna say is that it's okay to say white folks don't know. Um, it's, it's white folks who are uncomfortable or who are finding this as new information. Um, this is not new information to people who are not white. So I think it's like, I think just to be, to be clear and efficient in our language, we need to talk about that because of overwhelmingly a, a preponderance of organizational leaders are still white, um, that it's white leaders who are struggling. Um, black and brown leaders are struggling for other reasons um, because it's painful for them to sometimes to um, hear what a surprise all this is to their white colleagues. So there's different struggles, different jobs that we have depending on our, our racial identity right now. Um, so what we've done, we, we were involved in the um, Structural Racism Initiative that some, several years ago that St. Joe's Neighborhood Center ran. And, and even before that, you know, we've been doing these conversations on race, involved in a lot of different anti-racism projects. And so we, what we found was that we had a, um, we had a team, uh, a primarily young, quite, diverse, um, racially, ethnically, in other ways, um, diverse team. And our board was in kind of in a different space. And this is a classic thing in nonprofits. You know, like the board's over here and the board's kind of older and the board's usually established and the board's often white. And the board's gonna be, you know, thinking more, way, way more mainstream. And so there was this kind of gap opening up. And, you know, I felt like I had, like, it's like a, piece of ice that breaks off you know I had like one foot <laughs> sliding off in one direction and one in the other and so um, we had some really great um, we, we were blessed to have some people um, that we had genuine relationships with uh, who joined our board several years ago who identify as black and brown and with our staff we began to have these really challenging conversations on our board um, that led to some people leaving and other people coming. Um, we also have staff commitments that we've created that relate to uh, understanding what our, like our different positions on our staff and really calling people in to recognize all the time, you know, who speaks up in, in meetings, who doesn't, who steps up, who steps back. So really calling on ourselves. Um, we have a process for dealing with conflict when it occurs um, and recognizing that conflicts are easy to sweep under the rug, but especially when there's um, divergences and, and rank and power in conflicts, those need to be worked with. So we have a staff commitments that we use um, and also a feedback process that's a 360 feedback process that we developed that uses nonviolent communication principles. So people need to state an observation what exactly did someone do? Not an evaluation or, you know, you're always late. Nope, it has to be, um, you know, the last three staff meetings, we we had an agreement to start at nine and you arrived somewhere between around nine, 10 or nine, 15. Observations are harder for people to, to argue with. So 
observations are also part of the nonviolent communication discipline. And then the needs, uh, looking at the needs that are met. Our feedback process asks people in three different categories to speak to stuff that went well, as well as stuff that did not go well. And in part, it's a chance for people to work out their muscles of really being able to engage in difficult conversations with one another. So we ha we did all we've been doing all this while we've been going around trying to teach it out in the community too, and you and you know it's the only way you have an integrity is that when you realize you've got a gap internally, especially if it's something that you represent out in the world. So um, it's been a it's been a great a great journey, and we're never done learning. You know, as soon as I start to think we're good, then that means trouble's on the way. <laughs> well, I I think that you know. I, just you, you've been so so transparent uh, along the way of your your own personal journey, your your organizational journey, and the and the challenge of really living what you what you espouse. Uh, I'm wondering for for those listeners out there who again maybe maybe are interested in some of these principles may have an opportunity to to engage with uh, you and and the Gandhi Center in in general. Uh, but what are maybe what are some of the things along the way either that surprised you or, or lessons learned along the way or things maybe that you suggest for them to, to watch out for on this, on this journey as they, as they hopefully are, are ready to, to begin? A journey around anti-racism, Andrew? Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one is that we need support to do hard things. So, you know, find the, find the support. One, one great you know, space of support in Rochester is the uh, Workforce Diversity Network. I highly recommend people check that space out. Um, uh, I think that we need to just be constantly learning. Uh, we've been running White Fragility book groups for about a year and a half. Robin D'Angelo's amazing book. Uh, we've got one starting up this week. I think reading those books and holding one another accountable for what you're really taking in matters. So I, I, there's, a, there's, I think like right now, um, like I'm working with the, one of the large faith communities in the area and um, giving everyone on their executive leadership team a, a list of either um, of resources and having every one of them like pick one article and one video to view and then coming in with their own findings. Um, recognizing that, you know, we do all come in with our own funds of knowledge. So everybody's not a blank slate. I think is really important um, not putting work or responsibility for white white efforts on folks of color but having white people really take responsibility for that I think it's is really critical and like there's some we have to this beautiful tricky balance of being courageous and also merciful and both things are really are qualities that are super needed right now and Merciful doesn't mean not speaking up, and courageous doesn't mean cool. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think that's I think that's a really interesting kind of place to to start to wrap up because I think that so many of these principles you mentioned you they they've changed your life in a lot of ways. I, I think they can change they can change and transform families. They can change and transform businesses. Uh, they can change and transform inside of schools. There's so many different ways to apply some of these things uh, in a way that really can, you know, conversation by conversation, transformation by transformation, really start to, to move our society, hopefully in a direction uh, where we do have 
more of this restorative practice or we do have more of this, this mindfulness, this, this relational way of being. Uh, so for those that maybe are, are interested in applying these in their own lives or in their organizations, uh, where, where is it that they, can, that they can find you and hopefully get started? Um, well, the website is GandhiInstitute.org, G-A-N-D-H-A, Institute.org. Um, my contact information is in there, and I'm always happy to have a chat with leaders, um, especially people in Rochester. I'm a five-generation Rochester person, and I love this community. I think it's a really important part of the world um, with our fresh water reserves that we have, and I want, I want this Western New York region to thrive, so I'm very motivated to support organizations here, but even up beyond that too, of course. So that would be one space, and just take a look at what we're offering. And um, we, have, we have other offerings that we do to support organizations that aren't necessarily the ones on our website. So if you look and see what, what you've got there and there's more questions, we can always just chat. Perfect. Yeah. And, and I just want to wrap up too. I, I was just riding around town over the weekend and I saw your, one of your billboards, yeah. uh, you know, in your nonviolence now campaign. So those, those listeners that are in Rochester, you may see those around. Uh, and, and really this one was saying my neighborhood matters because, and just leaving a blank for, for people to, to think about. And, and it's that, that nonviolence now campaign, but also, um, you know, saying how this is, this nonviolence is important now more than ever. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I think that so many of these principles that, that we've been talking about today are important. They've always been important, uh, but we've been awoken to that fact uh, that, that they are important now more than ever. And so I really do hope that we can start a more, more of these skill building towards this relational way of being, this, this restorative way of, way of dealing with conflict. And uh, I really, truly appreciate your time today and sharing all of your wisdom uh, more importantly, for the work that you're doing each and every day around Rochester. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kit. And uh, I have a feeling this won't be our last conversation. I hope not, Andrew. I'm thankful for you. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.